So we'll be in the book of Hebrews this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that that book starts on page 1001. For the rest of you, Hebrews is found after the very important book of Philemon. So it should be easy to find that way as well. A brief understanding for the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a synonymous synonymous term with, call it an Israelite, or or we would say a Jew. Uh, Unless you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a a Jew, um, then you're a Gentile. But if you are a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that makes you a Hebrew. And so Hebrews, this New Testament book of Hebrews, if... if, uh, In my perfect world, I probably would have put the New Testament book of Hebrews right after Acts. You've got the four Gospels, then you've got the birth of the church in Acts of the Apostles, and then I think a very fitting book immediately after that would be the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews is written by an unknown Hebrew, an unknown Israelite. It almost certainly could not have been the Apostle Paul, though for a lot of years it was attributed to him. I've got my own guesses, but there's, it's impossible to know. But it's written by a Hebrew. It's written to Hebrews. So it's not, in some sense, it's not really written to us, but it's certainly for our benefit. We certainly can profit from it. The book of Hebrews will be to your advantage. The more you know about the Old Testament, the greater meaning the New Testament book of Hebrews will have because it's the culmination of everything found in the Old Testament. It all is leading to what is presented in this message, which kind of sounds like a sermon preached, and it would have been fairly long, and it wound up being written down, but it's preached by a Hebrew to Hebrews. Some of those Hebrews believe they've confessed Jesus as the Messiah, and so the the speaker is encouraging them, because life is a little more difficult than they probably imagined it would be. Some of those Hebrews have already turned away. They don't believe Jesus is Messiah, and there's a warning to them. There's also a warning to Hebrews that are kind of fluctuating. They're kind of hedging their bets. They've kind of got a wait-and-see attitude. We're not really sure what to think. We kind of want to see how this all plays out, and there's a warning given to them as well. See, the book of Hebrews, for a lot of Christians, is very perplexing. And you can read, if you read different commentaries, or maybe you've heard different sermons, there's this big debate, who is it written to? Is it written to believers? And if it is, why does he talk about, in some sense, falling away, and not being able to be renewed to repentance? But if it's written to unbelievers, why does he say things like, I'm assured of better things of you. I'm assured that you are going to press on. It's written to both. It's written to Hebrews, some believing, some unbelieving, and some kind of wavering in the middle. It's like if you imagine a Billy Graham crusade where he's preaching the entire audience, some of which are Christians, some of which are not Christians, some of which are there only because they've been invited and to placate somebody, maybe a friend they're attending, but they, they have no interest in the gospel. But there are some that are very interested, but they're not sure what to think. And Billy Graham preaches to the whole crusade. That's what the author of Hebrews does. In this book, if I were to give you a big picture, 
he's certainly preaching Christ's superiority. Jesus is superior to everything Jewish that they've ever known to that point. You can kind of divide up the first ten chapters into chapters one and four, and then chapter five through the first part of chapter ten. And then it goes transitions into some very practical material in the middle part of chapter ten, which pretty much continues on through the remainder of the of the sermon or the message. But in the first part, the first four chapters, the author or the speaker is saying Christ is superior to everyone you've known in the Old Testament, in our history. Specifically, Christ is superior to the prophets, superior to the angels, superior to Moses, Joshua. Christ is superior to the rest that was promised the Israelites when they entered the promised land. He, as a person, is superior to all those things. And what he has done is also superior. So that's what's compared in the next five, chapter 5 through the middle of 10. It's not only the person, but also the work is superior. So his work is superior to what the high priest did. If you were a high priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. But there was a bigger priestly class. It was the whole tribe of Levi. One of Israel's patriarchs, Jacob, had 12 sons. Each son represented a tribe, and, and you kept strict geneal- genealogical records, and you knew which tribe you were from. And one of the 12 tribes is wholly devoted to the ministry of the Lord, to worship, to taking care of the, the tabernacle or the temple, uh, all that was involved in Israel's worship. But the high priest specifically had to be from, from the family of Aaron, who happened to be a Levite. But Christ is superior to Aaron... The high priest, he's superior to all the Levites. He's superior, his work is superior to everything under the, under the old covenant, the law of Moses. Christ brings a new covenant. When the church celebrates the Lord's Supper, we celebrate a new covenant, which is superior to the old. His work is superior to the earthly tabernacle. His sacrifice is superior to all of the sacrifices that have been made up to that point. And there were times where very many sacrifices were made. Probably the most that I can remember was when Solomon built his temple, which would have been one of the wonders of the world at that time. And if it wasn't thousands, it was hundreds of animal sacrifices were offered at that time. And Christ's one sacrifice is superior to it all. So that's kind of a, an easy breakdown as to how this starts off. But so what? So what if the author of Hebrews thinks that Jesus is superior to Moses and Joshua and pick your person? It's kind of like... It, in our day, if um, I'm not, I like most sports. I, I never really got into basketball, and it was probably because I wasn't good at it. Uh, but for whatever reason, I'm really, but I kind of have an opinion about basketball. If you were to ask me who the greatest NBA player of all time has ever been, it would be an easy answer. It would be Michael Jordan. But I've got a neighbor who follows basketball a lot better than I do. And he would contend LeBron James is the best basketball player of all time. I know, imagine. But then there's some people that would say, well, you're just too young. You don't know about Bill Russell and all the championships he won. Some people would contend that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the best basketball player of all time. And so it kind of becomes this matter of, of truth is relative. Your perspective is different from mine. And, and how do you really judge who the best basketball player of all time is? The author of Hebrews is saying Christ is better than it all, but 
Could that just be a matter of judgment? That's what he says, but that may not be what somebody else finds. Somebody else may find Moses and the Old Testament law and the sacrifices and, and, and the incense that's offered. They may find that very meaningful. And who is the author to say that Christ is better than that? And to warn you that if you don't get on board with this Christ, you're facing a damnation from a holy God who you think you're following. So it becomes a matter of what is truth. Is truth little t or is truth big t? Well, there's certainly in some areas who the best basketball player of all time is. That's subjective. There can be difference of opinion. We can all be right. Even if you think LeBron James, you can be right in your own little world. (laughs) But when it comes to Christ compared to these other figures of Scripture, I put that under a big T truth. That we can't all be right as to the way of salvation or the forgiveness of sins or how peace with God is made. I think that falls under the category of big T truth. One of my favorite books of all time, which most people, I think, know, would be the book Anonymous by Alicia Britt, and I learned how to pronounce her last name, Cholet. Alicia Britt, Britt Cholet. I think this is a fabulous book. But she wrote a book after this book, which isn't as good in my opinion. It's a good book. It's kind of hard to follow up the content of Anonymous. But she wrote a book after this book. It's entitled in these, all these letters scattered, Finding an Unseen God. And the subtitle is Reflections of a Former Atheist. Because Alicia used to be an atheist. She was like C.S. Lewis, like different kind of important figures in modern church history, where they weren't born into a Christian family, reared up, and, and they can, they've been a Christian, they've confessed Christ as Lord and Savior for as long as they can remember. She was an atheist, and she came to faith later. I don't, I don't know if I was in high school or in college, I can't remember now. But I'm, there's one quote in particular I want to share with you, where she speaks to this issue of truth, in particular truth about God. But as I was looking through the book, I found like a lot of other really good quotes So I'm going to give you a series of three quotes from her book, Finding an Unseen God. The first quote looks like this. Drowning in versions of truth, we throw up our hands and concede that the real truth is unknowable. It cannot be absolutely found. Exhausted, we must regrettably call off the search. It's so hard to know what is true. Everybody has an opinion what is true. Our culture does. Religious leaders do, from whatever tradition. Everybody has an idea what truth is. And so it's easy to throw up your hands and say, I just don't know. It's too confusing. She goes on. Recently, our family vacation road trip took us to New York City. Spatially disoriented from birth, I must have asked a dozen people for directions to the famous intersection of Times Square. The New Yorkers were exceptionally patient, which means they weren't much patient, but they gave her a little patience, and consistent with their reply. Times Square was just around the corner. Thirty minutes later, and hopelessly lost, I did not question if Times Square truly existed. Times Square was, like it or not. The destination was fixed. It had neither moved nor morphed. See, a a location like Times Square is not left up to everybody's subjective opinion. You may have a subjective opinion as to the best way to arrive there, but the fact that it exists in a certain place is fixed. 
That's capital T truth. It cannot be changed. You can wish it were somewhere else. You can believe it were somewhere else. You can tell people it's somewhere else. But in fact, it's one place at one particular time. That's capital T truth. So that's just to establish the fact that there's one way to look at there's only one kind of truth when it comes to certain things. A second quote, which I really appreciated and liked, this is talking a little bit about uh, her after-conversion to Christianity. She writes, I think the honest atheist might say, God's non-existence cannot with finality be proven. I agree. Why, then, is it considered ethical to ask the Christian to absolutely prove what the atheist knows cannot be absolutely disproved? Theists are challenged to do the impossible, and then their failure is entered as evidence that their beliefs are misplaced. This is not a cry for mercy. It is a cry for integrity in the discussion. What she's saying is, yes, there is some sense in which I cannot prove God exists. And an atheist can't prove God does not exist. So it's somewhat not, it's disingenuous to expect a Christian to be able to prove what an atheist knows can't be proven or disproven. We're all left in a position of we have to believe something or depend on something, lean on something by faith. That's where we put our chips. He either exists or he doesn't. She goes on to say, the same quote, As a former atheist, I now cringe when I hear someone challenge a theist to bring forth concrete, irrefutable evidence that God or gods exist. Yes, I remember that the challenge was effective in a debate, but winning a debate lost its appeal to me long ago. So she understands that as an atheist, that was always a really solid point. You Christians can't prove God exists. She says, that's not fair. But she realized it was effective in its own, own time. Then she makes this statement, which I, I find so, so powerful and, and convicting at the same time. She concludes, a Muslim man helped me see the futility of winning. We struck up a conversation in a library foyer my senior year of college. I do not remember how the discussion began, but soon we were talking about our respective religions, and I shifted into debate gear. After an an extended pause, following a strategic point that I had made, this man's eyes became moist, and in a strong but wounded voice he said, I thought followers of Jesus were supposed to love people. Then he turned and walked away. I never saw him again. His eyes still haunt me. I think that's so convicting because I can look at social media the same as you do, and it's not only in social media, where it's so easy for people to spout off what they think is true. And they may be right what is true. Their position may be right, but if it is cast without love, what have we accomplished? What does it accomplish if our doctrinal statement is so solid and so defendable according to Scripture, and we hold these positions without love, we've missed the call of the church. The church is to maintain truth in love. To maintain truth in love. Her last quote is the one that I really wanted to use initially in addressing this topic. It goes like this. Almost all of us have beliefs about God. 
Even if we do not particularly, particularly believe in God, most of us have an assortment of beliefs about God. How were those beliefs formed? We become annoyed when people draw conclusions about who we are when they do not even know us. We become aggravated when people make assumptions without ever giving us the chance to speak for ourselves. We call that arrogance. Who am I to say who you are and what you're like and what your interests are and how you treat people? Who am I to do that? Now you can see how she's going to apply this. We, we call that arrogance among ourselves if we prejudge people and, and think we can speak for them instead of them. She concludes, Yet we do the same thing to God on a regular basis. We frequently draw conclusions about who God is without really knowing Him. We regularly make assumptions about why God does what He does without ever giving Him the chance to speak for Himself. Has God spoken for Himself? Has God revealed where truth is and how He can be found and the means of approach to Him? Has God spoken? Or, or is it just we all get to decide for ourselves how God is to be worshipped and what is acceptable and pleasing in His sight? And how many different paths and ways there are to God? I suggest to you, I propose to you, God has spoken. And that is exactly how the author of Hebrews opens up his sermon. Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses, they read like this. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's how he opens his sermon. Many, God in times past spoke many different ways and through many different prophets, but now he's spoken through his son. And so as the author, the speaker in Hebrews, as he works through his text, what he's going to say is, if Christ doesn't convince you that God has spoken... And if he doesn't convince you the way, the truth, and the life is found in in Christ, if that isn't convincing to you, you've got no hope because God's not going to send a prophet. There's nothing greater than his son. Once his son has spoken, the case is closed. It's not open to debate. It's not open to, well, what does somebody else think? Or how many people agree with what the son has said? Once the son has spoken the decision has been rendered. And that's the position. That's the message of the author of Hebrews. He talks about the son, this, uh, the son making purification for sins, his death on a cross. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's his resurrection from the grave. Because he lives. And he sits at the right hand of the Father on high. So based upon this opening, his first major conclusion comes in chapter 4 and verses 14 to 16. This is his first major conclusion. He makes several as he works through this sermon, but this would be the first really big one. I'll show you the, word, the, the text on the screen, but you can turn there as well. Chapter 4, verse 14. The author says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence. I like how some Bible translations use the word boldness. I like boldness a little bit better. Both are good. Both capture the meaning. But I really like boldness. Let us with boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I'm going to choose to believe that you know enough about the Old Testament that you know that when God gave his law, when he gave the tablets of stone to Moses, that was with trembling and fear. The people were shaking at the foot of the mountain and they told Moses, you go up, we'll wait here. You probably know that, but do you know that in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that Moses also trembled with fear. I don't have these verses on the screen, but in chapter 12 and verse 20, it says, For they, speaking of the Israelites, could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And now all of a sudden, the author of Hebrews is saying, enter the throne of grace with confidence and with boldness. Wait a minute, Moses didn't have that kind of confidence. And his face shone with the radiance of God when he came down from that mountain. Where does that confidence and where does that boldness come from? It's an amazing thing what the author of Hebrews is suggesting. And by the way, he's not just suggesting to humankind apart from Christ to enter with boldness. You know what? There's a lot of people that speak boldly about God and Christ. They speak very boldly about their their assurance in their own minds that they will enter the kingdom of heaven at some point, some way, and yet it's apart from Christ. This boldness that we're... uh, encouraged to draw near the throne of grace. Where does it come from? It comes from, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. You know, most of us, at least me, and sometimes even as an adult, I suppose, there's times in your life where it's a somewhat of a frightening situation or uh, an uncertain situation as a child growing up with my childhood friends. Uh, we would go exploring different places, doing different things. And if there was something that you know, maybe it's in winter time, and, and we're going actually over a river. Or there's, you know there's a lot of rushing water, and you're not sure how sure the ice is, and, and it's you go first. You know, I'll follow you. Lots, it's, e- it's a lot easier in that situation. You go first, I'll follow. Because if something bad's going to happen, let it happen to you, not me. You know, riding a bicycle, uh, when I'm riding with a group of co-bicyclists, and we're going past some farm that they don't keep their dog chained up, all you have to do is not be the slowest guy. Uh, you know, in that case, you want to go first. You don't want to go last in that situation. But in a lot of situations, it's like you go first. This confidence that the author of Hebrews is talking about, he says it's because we have a high priest who is what? He's passed through the heavens. He's gone first. That's where the confidence comes from. It doesn't come from, I just muster up the confidence I muster up the boldness. I find that I've always had this within me. He went first. He's made peace. It's his worthiness that allows me to go with boldness and confidence before the very throne of God in which Moses shook and trembled at. Because he went first. He went first with his own blood. 
Blood's used a lot in Scripture. It's used a lot in Hebrews as well. I told you about the animal sacrifices, particularly that were made when Solomon dedicated the temple, but they're all through the Old Testament. And then Christ shed his blood on the cross. He went to the throne of... He went into the heavenly tabernacle on the basis of his own blood, his own shed blood on a cross. It's very interesting. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, without the shedding of blood... There's no forgiveness of sins. Skip over to Hebrews chapter 9 for just a moment. I'm going to read to you randomly some verses. The entire chapter is worthy of your attention. It's a chapter that has a lot to do with blood. I'm going to skip down to, say, chapter 9, verse 6. It's talking about how the priests under the Old Covenant used blood. These preparations... Having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, that is the most holy place, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Skip down to verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own. For then he would have to, speaking of Christ, Christ would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, by the shedding of his blood. What I want you to know and what you need to understand about blood, because sometimes this is... Uh, unsettling to people that don't understand what Christianity or what the Bible teaches. It seems like God has this weird preoccupation with blood. But he doesn't. It's not that God is infatuated with blood. God's the one who says, I don't delight in all these animals that are being sacrificed. Rather, our sin requires it. Our sin requires somebody pay because we've, we've... uh, participated in insurrection and treason against a holy God who made us in his image. And a judge renders a sentence based upon certain principles of law. And if every time somebody came before a judge, the judge said, ah, just do better next time. I'm going to give you another chance. Over and over, the judge just do better next time. I'm going to give you another chance. Justice is never rendered. God is good. He's better than any judge. And because God is good, sin must be punished. There must be death for treason and insurrection and high-handed sin against a holy God because God is good. And that blood is a demonstration of how great our sin is against that holy God. Christ shed his blood, not just for our unintentional sins, but he cleanses the very conscience. 
the very motivations that create our sins. Hebrews chapter 9. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And the book of Hebrews uses the word perfect or perfection 14 times. When the book of Hebrews, because that's the goal in Hebrews, what we want to, what the author in, is, is addressing these Hebrews is he's saying the goal is to arrive at perfection, to perfection. And what is perfection? It's a word that means completion, fulfillment, accomplishment. All this blood is being shed in order that something something be accomplished. What are we trying to accomplish in the shedding of blood? And the answer in Hebrews is, the goal is a restored relationship with God. Enter the Old Testament sacrifices. They're trying to restore a relationship with their, their God, who brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We're trying to re- bring this relationship into this perfect, completed state. But what they found out was that their priests proved weak and ineffective. Their priests kept dying. The priests had to offer sacrifices and shed blood for themselves before they could do anything for the people. The priests offered these sacrifices over and over daily. Every day they're offering these sacrifices. And the high priest only once a year goes into the most holy place before the throne of God with the blood of an animal and sprinkles it on the mercy seat. It's weak. It's ineffective. It's really, it's not accomplishing this restored relationship with God, which is the whole point of the blood. And so we enter Christ. Jesus is a better priest in every way. He doesn't die. His sacrifices were one and done. And he ever lives to make intercession for his people. Not all people of the world who haven't confessed him as Lord and Savior, they receive no benefit, though his, his blood is sufficient for all who will believe. But for those who do believe, he continues to intercede for those people. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. This is, again, a chapter I could commend the entire chapter to you because it really is that good. It starts off in Hebrews chapter 7 where the author compares Jesus to a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. He doesn't qualify as a priest under the law of Moses. Because he's not from the tribe of Levi, he certainly doesn't qualify as a high priest. He's not from the family of Aaron. He's from a completely different tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. But the author of Hebrews says, no worries. Because tucked back in the Old Testament, before Abraham was really known for a lot of the things he was known for, before Isaac, before Jacob, before Moses, before Joshua, before all that, tucked way back in the Old Testament is this priest, this guy named Melchizedek. I think he's, I think it's, in my mind, it's pretty clear, though the language is unclear. It talks about, maybe it's worth just reading it. Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we know Melchizedek is king and he's priest, which already sounds like uh, you're messing with chemicals that shouldn't be messed with. Part of the beauty of the American uh, governmental system is we have a separation of powers. Because when when you give too much power into any one individual, power tends to corrupt people pretty quickly. And so, under Old Testament law, priests did what priests did, and kings did what kings did, but you kept them separate. Priests weren't kings, 
kings weren't priests. But Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. Verse 2, to him Abraham apportioned, so Abraham gives to this Melchizedek a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then, speaking of Melchizedek, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. That's very interesting what it says there. Because it says, regarding Melchizedek, make sure you get the order straight. He's king of righteousness first. He's a priest of peace later. Righteousness leads to peace. You can't have peace apart from righteousness. That's part of the whole problem with the priestly system under the Old Covenant. You've got priests who really aren't righteous. They've got to offer an animal sacrifice for themselves to kind of cover up their own sin. And then they offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Melchizedek is a, is a person who's a king of righteousness, and then he serves as a priest of peace. Christ, who's the eternal, the eternal Son of God, who dwells in righteousness with his Father, brings peace by the sacrifice of his own blood. He was righteous before he brought his peace. Um, verse 3. No, I don't want to go into all that. Let me skip down to verse uh, 11. Chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection, again, perfection being the goal of, of achieving a reconciled relationship with God, verse 11, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but he becomes a priest by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ serves as priest not according to some law given to Moses. He serves as priest by the oath of all, an almighty God. And the author of Hebrews is saying, if, if the Levitical priest could have achieved this, this perfection, this restored relationship with God, we wouldn't need Jesus. Because it's working really well under the old system. But the author of Hebrews says it's not working really well under the old system. Let's be honest. And can I be honest and can you be honest and say, you know what? It's not really working that well that I just do the best I can. It's not really working all that well that I just try to choose the, the right path in a given moment. I try to treat other people like I want to be treated. I try to live by the golden rule. Can you be honest enough to say, you know what? It doesn't always look like that. Sometimes it looks kind of messy. Sometimes I hold grudges and sometimes I'm selfish and sometimes I say the wrong thing. And sometimes I mean to say the wrong thing. I need a priest. I need somebody that can restore a relationship with God because I was made in his image. And that's why Christ came. He lives, he serves by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. 
for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him, for them. He ever lives. The power of an indestructible life. My hope is in Christ because he lives. Not because he set a good example of how to treat your enemies as he died on a cross. Though he did that too. But my hope in the forgiveness of sins, my hope in a restored relationship with God is because he lives. And he went before me before the throne of God pleading his own blood. And me being covered in his blood, I can approach God's throne with boldness and confidence. Christ went first. Christ established peace. My hope is based simply upon my confession. Christ lives, he's Savior. What do we say? Let's say this all together. This is a passage from Romans chapter 8. So appropriate in light of Christ serving as a priest. Together. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have spoken. A God who dwells and is above everything that we know in the created order. And you've chosen to condescend and speak to us through the mouths of your holy prophets, but then most loudly in the person of your Son. God made man, coming to dwell with us, laying down his life and shedding his blood, rising from the dead, going before us before the presence of Almighty Holy Father.